Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. This episode contains details of violence involving children. Please take care where and when you listen. It's a cold September night in Pontiac, Michigan, just about 30 minutes outside of Detroit. Robert Perry, Jacqueline Etchens, and their six children are getting ready for bed. Their heat had recently been disconnected, so Jacqueline and Robert turn on a space heater in the children's room to keep them warm. Two hours later, one of the children wakes up Robert and Jacqueline. The kid's bedroom was filled with smoke and flames. Jackie was able to take three of the younger children out of the home and go to a neighbor's house to call 911. Megan Richardson is an attorney with the Michigan Innocence Clinic. Her partner, Robert, went back into the home to try to rescue the three other children. And unfortunately, the fire became so intense that Robert and the three children did not survive. They were unable to escape the home. Those three children were five-year-old Albert, two-year-old Mercedes, and one-year-old Demetrius. Word spreads about the tragedy throughout the Pontiac community, including to a family friend, Anthony Kyles. We woke up that morning and I got a call and my cousin told me that house that had caught on fire and it was just devastating. My youngest daughter, I used to have her go in the house and get Mercedes and I'd take her and buy her clothes and shoes and feed her. Fire investigators go through the scene. What they see makes them suspect arson. Shortly after the fire was put out, they looked at things like dark charring and burn patterns. The entire front porch of the home was like completely consumed and destroyed by the fire. They decided that the fire had to have been of extremely high temperature and high heat in order for it to have completely destroyed the porch. Jacqueline told investigators that when she'd asked Robert what was on fire, he had responded, the heater. But her statements aren't taken seriously, and investigators rule out the space heater as a source of the fire. 
Pressured by police to think of anyone who might have set the fire, Etchens offers up a name. There was someone with whom she'd recently had a disagreement, Anthony Kyles. Investigators now had their arson suspect. To seal the deal, they pressure a man facing burglary charges named Keith Holloman to claim he saw Anthony throw a Molotov cocktail onto the Etchens' porch. Anthony hears the news from his family. I have went back to prison for a parole violation and uh, getting ready to go home on parole. I called home and my oldest daughter, she got on the phone and she was like, Dad, they say you're not coming home anymore. I said, what you mean? She was like, no, you all on the news. They saying that they, you gonna stay in prison. So I said, put your mother on the phone, which I'm talking about my mother. So she get on the phone, she said, yeah, baby, they finna come get you, people die. I said, what? And I, not too long after that, they uh, arrested me just before I got ready to get released. Anthony is charged and convicted of four counts of second-degree murder. He's away from his three daughters, Ashley, a preteen, Shanae, a toddler, and Amira, just a baby. They all grew up believing their father was sitting in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And they decide to do something about it. Keith Holloman, I decided to write him one day to just get his side of the story. And he did write me back and told me that he pretty much was forced into testifying against my dad. And the case against Anthony Kyles begins to go up in smoke. I'm Molly Herman, and this is CSI on Trial. Two or three stains are really not enough to call something an impact spatter from gunshot that's going to put someone in prison the rest of their life. You thought that making up a lie was going to get you home sooner? That's what they told. What is it about a bite mark that would make a dentist an expert in this area? Sir, did you um, see who shot at you? I did not. He said, I will sit in this jail and I will rot before I take a plea bargain. The problem with forensic science in the criminal legal system today is that it's an awful lot of forensic and not an awful lot of science. Today's episode, Arson Investigation. So there's been a real revolution in the understanding of how fire starts, how it behaves, and we need to bring this into the courts as we're starting to do. Doug Starr is a science journalist and author who writes about the history of forensic science. In the 70s, there was a growing awareness of house fires, and there was a famous report under the Nixon administration called America Burning that showed that house fires were a lot more common than we thought. The people that investigate these fires usually have a working knowledge that was passed down to them. Arson was always one of these apprenticeship kind of skills that maybe you were an ex-cop or an ex-firefighter and, and that you were trained by your superiors, usually an older guy, about, well, this is what arson looks like. And it was all intuitive. And the qualification standards of who can investigate a fire varies pretty widely. It depends on the state. Some states like Massachusetts actually have licensing and you need to have taken courses and shown that you can be a fire investigator. Other states uh, have no requirement at all and that if you have a private eye license, that's good enough. Uh, so there's no standardization. 
To understand more about fires, scientists began to set and study them in controlled environments. For the first time, they were collecting data in real time as the fire burned. And in 1991, a naturally occurring wildfire in Oakland, California, gave researchers another chance to collect data. The Oakland fire raged out of control for three days, ultimately burning 3,000 homes and taking the lives of 25 people. My name is John Lantini. I'm a fire investigator. John led a research team to examine the remains of the fire. What they found completely upended conventional wisdom. The fire patterns like melted steel, melted copper, crazed glass, spalled concrete. We went looking for that out in Oakland, and we found it just about everywhere. We could have made an arson out of all those houses. Where there was once wood, they found shiny charred surfaces patterned like alligator skin. Concrete structures had crumbled, and window glass was cracked into spiderweb patterns. Those are all supposed to be telltale signs of arson, but they knew this was a wildfire, an accident. So we just debunked like three or four myths all at once in 1991. One clue long considered to be a sign of arson is called a pore pattern, a burnt area on a floor or carpet supposedly signifying that liquid accelerant like gasoline was poured there. But it's now been discovered that pore patterns are not conclusive indicators of arson after all. Doug Starr. It was assumed if you saw this pattern on the floor, it must have been gasoline. It turns out that could be caused by ventilation. It could also be caused by the fact that your couch just melted and lit on fire. And an entirely new concept has pretty much changed everything investigators thought they knew. That concept is called flashover. It is fascinating. So fire starts, might be something that ignited the couch, and you see the room slowly fill with smoke and vapors, and the temperatures are rising, rising, rising. It hits 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit, and all of a sudden the room pretty much explodes. The room becomes, instead of being the source of the fire, it becomes on fire. It becomes the fire. And as a result, you get all sorts of crazy patterns that people used to think were signs of arson. In 1990, John Lentini examined a house fire in Jacksonville, Florida. Four children and two adults died in what became known as the Lime Street Fire. The house had gone up in just minutes, but not before a man named Gerald Lewis escaped with his three-year-old son. Because of a poor pattern found on the floor, he was charged with arson, manslaughter, and six counts of first-degree murder. Investigators believed that gasoline, used by Lewis to start the fire, left the pattern. It was a sharp, continuous, irregular pattern right through the living room doorway out to the hallway. The prosecutor hired John Lentini to provide a report on the chemistry of the poor pattern. John was familiar with the fire investigator working the case. I had seen his work on previous occasions and found it to be uniformly bad. So he sent samples from Lime Street to a group of experts to see if the fire investigator was correct about gasoline being present. I sent it to 10 chemists 
And they were unanimous. They said, John, you know this is not gasoline. But without liquid accelerant, why did the fire burn so fast and so hot? There had to be another explanation. John wanted to find out. He found a house that was built by the same builder and had all the same construction details. He even outfitted it with similar furniture, then added cameras and temperature monitors. And we lit that thing on fire, and we thought it was going to take 15 to 20 minutes to flash over the room. And at three and a half minutes, the firefighter who was filming in the doorway of the living room had to bug out. And by four minutes, the room had flashed over. And we were shocked. The speed and the heat of the fire were totally unexpected. And then we saw that it charred the floor and it made a shiny alligator fire pattern on the floor in the living room doorway. And on seeing that, I said to the prosecutors, you know that deposition I was gonna give tomorrow and say this is arson? Can't do it. Within a week, the prosecution dropped the case against Gerald Lewis. Investigators used to think that flashover fires that heat up fast and explode were rare. And that may have been true once upon a time. If you think about in the 50s and 60s, the furniture was made out of cotton and wood and wool. And if you light a couch on fire made out of those materials, it might take 30 minutes before that couch is fully involved. But technological developments changed everything. By the 1970s, furniture manufacturers had switched from natural materials to polyurethane, which of course is made from oil. So a modern couch that catches on fire essentially becomes a bomb. If you light a couch on fire, you can bring the room to flash over in under five minutes, repeatedly. And I've seen it happen faster than that. People have seen it happen in 90 seconds. So if your couch ever catches on fire, get out. Just get out, it's too late. And that same synthetic furniture, melted by flashover, can leave behind what looks like a poor pattern. Those very same patterns investigators kept seeing in arson cases. Everything investigators thought was true about fire behavior was turning out to be false. So in 1992, based on the findings of John Lentini and others, the National Fire Protection Association published its first science-based arson investigation handbook. It's called NFPA 921, and it struck a nerve. A lot of fire investigators just hated that document. They said, how dare these people tell me how to do my job? I've been doing this for 30 or 40 years. New science had advanced the understanding of how fires work, but substantive change didn't follow especially for those already sitting in prison for crimes that were actually just accidents. For one Michigan man, it was a fire that killed his entire family. The fire happened so fast, it, it, it just... <sighs> Sorry. Every family has skeletons in their closet. 
mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See if I got this right. You got my name. Okay. Well, my name's David Lee Gavitt. I spent almost 27 years as an innocent man incarcerated because of bad science that was used against me. March of 1985 is where David's story begins. He and his wife, Angela, along with their two young daughters, 11-month-old Tracy and three-year-old Katrina, are living at his mother's home in Ionia, Michigan. They're a happy couple, crazy about their girls, and in love. Angela was a sweetheart. We met in the eighth grade, went steady, got engaged in high school. She was the love of my life, Molly. She was the love of my life. The girls' room is directly across the hall from Angela and David's. One night, leaving the children's door ajar in case one of them needed something, Angela and David go to bed. I'm laying there just half asleep and half awake, and I hear the dog scratching at the bedroom door. I opened the bedroom door, and the first thing I noticed was a smoke in the hallway. I go, oh my God, Angela, the house is on fire. I'll make an escape route, try to get the kids out of the bedroom. And it's, we got separated, and she went into the children's bedroom to get the kids, and uh, I broke out the bedroom window because the fire was in the living room. But the heat and smoke overwhelm him. David has to get out. I made my escape out of the bedroom window that I broke, went around to the children's bedroom, the back of the house, to the children's bedroom, and noticed, no, they weren't outside. Desperate to find Angela and the girls, David attempts to re-enter the burning house, but a neighbor holds him back. I remember then crying out for Angela and the kids. Paramedics take David to the hospital, where he anxiously waits for news about his family. I asked the doctors, where's Angela, where's Katrina and Tracy? They said, Mr. Gavitt, they didn't make it out of the fire. And that's when I broke down and I said, no, no, let me go, let me go. Let me die with them, let me go with them. When fire investigators sifted through the burnt remains of the house, they find shiny charred wood, glass with spider-like cracks, and unusual burn patterns on the floor. Telltale signs, they believe, that the fire was intentionally set. Imran Syed is a lawyer who worked on David's case. A uh, investigator from the state fire marshal's office walked through the fire scene and believed he found what he believed to be 
unmistakable signs of arson, that the fire burned too quickly to have been a natural fire, that the burning into the you know, floors was, was too intense and too deep to have happened in a fire that didn't involve accelerants. Accelerants like gasoline or some other flammable liquid. Police went to see David in the hospital to tell him about their findings. We suspect it's arson. And the mistake I made was, yes, sir, I know that. And I remember the investigating officer looking at me all crazy like, how do you know that? My sister already informed me that they think it was arson. That's how I knew they, that the police was suspected arson. And that's why I wanted to talk to them to help investigate and find out what happened for sure. I had nothing to hide. I was innocent. I knew I was innocent. But the police only had one suspect in mind. Roughly around three months after the fire, they charged me. David is arrested and charged with arson and the murder of his family. He had no previous convictions. Character witnesses said he had good relationships with his wife Angela and their children. More than one of his neighbors even witnessed him desperately trying to save his family. But none of that could compete with what police thought was scientific proof of arson. And since David was the only survivor, it must have been him. They tested multiple samples from the burned home before finding what they said was gasoline. Imran Syed again. So those two things, these experts who say that, you know, all these physical markers mean arson and carpet samples that are testing positive for gasoline left the defense in a very helpless position, really. The jury was convinced. The verdict was read guilty on uh, three counts first-degree murder, three counts first-degree felony murder, one count arson. He's sentenced to life with no possibility of parole and goes to prison believing someone else must have set fire to his home, and that person was still out there. Meanwhile, more research is being done to understand yet another aspect of fire that could reveal how David's home could have burned so quickly. We visited the Firefighter Safety Research Institute in Philadelphia, where they are using life-sized models, a test house essentially, to better understand the role of oxygen in a fire. As they light the house on fire, Daniel Madraskowski monitors the temperature in different parts of the rooms, the flow of air, and the oxygen levels from a control room a safe distance away. He has set dozens of test fires with slight variations in the ventilation so he can compare the data. The big question is, do you have enough ventilation, do you have enough oxygen to support that transition of flashover? Flashover, remember, is a fire that burns so fast and hot that it basically explodes like a firebomb. In the first test fire room, there was minimal airflow and flashover never occurred. The air was not available to continue combustion in this compartment and the fire put itself out. But in another room, where there was more ventilation, more airflow, it does reach flashover. Fire damage in this room is significantly different. Damage from the ceiling all the way down to the floor. We've had complete burn through of things that were a half inch thick plywood. There's very little to nothing left of the sofa. So where there's more ventilation, there's more oxygen. And where there's more oxygen, there's more fire. This research sheds new light on the Gavit fire. 
Remember how David broke a window trying to create an escape route for his family? David didn't know at the time, you break a window, you create additional ventilation. But neither did top fire investigators at the time. David was convicted in the mid-80s before much of the science had caught up. But even after major discoveries, he sat in prison for decades. If Michigan had a death sentence at the time, I would have been dead a long time ago. And to be honest with you, after losing everything and going through everything I had to go through, I wanted to die. His cellmate became a paralegal inside prison. He read David's file and thought he had a case to overturn the conviction. Imran Syed was a third-year law student when he took on Gavit's case in 2009. So from the beginning, the state's experts were abiding by a series of what they thought were rules for, for fire behavior that turns out were just myths about fire behavior. I can't put into words the feelings, the goosebumps that went over my body. It was like Angela hold, hugging me and holding me, telling me it's going to be okay. You better not ever give up. The University of Michigan Law School Innocence Clinic team brought in new experts to examine the prosecution's case. That team included John Lentini, the investigator we told you about earlier, whose research changed what we know about fire behavior. Syed's team focused on the one piece of hard evidence they had, the test that indicated traces of flammable liquids in the Gavit home. John examined that test. I was appalled at the quality of the work. It was obviously done by a person who did not appreciate how to operate the instrument and how to interpret it. And when he retested the samples, he got stunningly different results. The chemist who had testified at trial that there was gasoline present in the carpet samples had simply misread the test, and now, you know, every competent chemist would agree that there was no gasoline present in the carpet. That meant no evidence that the fire was intentionally set. As he had always maintained, David was not the perpetrator. He was a victim, a wrongfully imprisoned man who had lost his family. So what could have caused the fire? You see, Angela and I both smoked cigarettes at the time. Angela collected antique oil lamps, and she loved candles. Unfortunately, we left the candles lit and the oil lamps left lit when we went in the bedroom. The experts claimed to think that it was either a lit cigarette or the candles or the oil lamps that started the fire. I still don't know to this day exactly how the fire started. On June 6, 2012, after 27 years in prison, Gavitt walked out a free man. I had no idea what was going on until my attorneys finally came in and sat down and says, you ready to go home? <laughs> He's walking out with a giant trunk with all his belongings and all the prisoners on the yard are applauding him. It's like a scene out of a cheesy movie, but it was actually real. It was amazing, truly amazing. While David won his freedom, another Michigan man spends years in jail, convicted of arson that killed four people. Anthony Kyles hoped someone would realize he was an innocent man and let him reunite with his children. Legal help, backed by science, was on the way. If the state's experts had done an appropriate investigation of exactly. your father's case and realized what the actual cause of the fire was, right. 
they never would have started pointing the finger. Right. Right. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting Mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return to the case of Anthony Kyles. You heard about him at the beginning of this episode. A man and three children tragically perished in a 1995 house fire. The prosecution convinced a jury that Anthony had intentionally set the fire by throwing a Molotov cocktail on the front porch of the house. Anthony's post-conviction attorney, Megan Richardson. They started to question Jackie about anyone who she may have had any sort of beef with in the days leading up to the fire. Even though she had already told investigators she believed their space heater caused the fire, she named Anthony, with whom she had had a recent argument. Prosecutors also had an informant named Keith Holloman. He testified at the trial that he saw Anthony throwing the Molotov cocktail onto the porch. And they had what they believed to be proof of arson. Dark charring, burn patterns, extremely high temperature and high heat. Pontiac Police Detective Stuart Trepti told the jury an accelerant on the front porch had to have caused the fire. Here's a voice actor reading that testimony. The front porch is so extensively burned that the only explanation for this fire is an application of an accelerant to the floor or to the room itself. Trepti also testified that the fire could not have started in the children's room and specifically was not caused by the space heater. It became clear that the fire did not start inside this room, but came into a room through a window, which was common with the front porch. Having examined the heater itself and the burn patterns where the heater was found, it was eliminated as a cause of the fire. Though the detective did later admit in court that no accelerant, like gasoline from that Molotov cocktail, was found in test samples. The state's experts at trial explained this by saying that, well, the fire must have just consumed all of the accelerant. But that just isn't acceptable in today's guidelines. Guided by the science at the time, Anthony's trial attorney did not dispute the expert testimony that this was arson. She only argued that Anthony did not set it. After 17 years in prison, the Innocence Project reviews Anthony's case and discovers evidence that it was, indeed, 
an accidental fire. An electric space heater that was just really dangerously and improperly rewired, no one intentionally set this fire. The space heater that Jackie Etchens told investigators about was most likely the source. It turns out that just two days before the tragedy, a friend had attempted to repair its broken cord by splicing it with a cord from a lamp. Anthony Kyles is justifiably infuriated that investigators and prosecutors didn't figure this out back in 1995. Robert went in the room and seen the room on fire and the mother asked him what was on fire and he said the space heater. Last thing that this man said out his mouth pretty much, you know, is that, hey, the space heater on fire. So you dismiss it and you just put an innocent man in prison for 25 years. And then there's the informant, Keith Holloman. With her father's blessing, Anthony's oldest daughter, Ashley, sent Holloman a letter asking why he said he saw Anthony that night throwing a Molotov cocktail. They didn't expect a response, but Ashley came back with a shocking update. She said, he said, you didn't do it. And I said, he said, what? You know, I was caught off guard and I was like, I need you to send me copies of that immediately. I couldn't believe that he finally uh, admitted telling the truth. Keith Holloman formally recanted his statement in 2015. He said he never saw Anthony throw a Molotov cocktail, that he wasn't near the house that night, and, quote, my statements were manipulated and fashioned by police in return for a promise of a reward and help with my burglary charges. So there's new evidence about the source of the fire and the key witness recants. And then there's NFPA 921, those guidelines John Lentini helped create. Frustratingly, they had been published three years before the 1995 fire. Still, investigators missed the single most consequential finding of new fire science. In this particular case, they neglected phenomenons like flashover. It seems like with all the evidence supporting Anthony Kyle's claim that he was innocent, getting exonerated would be the obvious outcome. But that's not how the justice system works. Imran Syed, who worked on David Gavitt's case, is co-director of the Michigan Innocence Clinic. He also worked on Anthony's case. It remains incredibly difficult to challenge a conviction after it happens. There remain very high procedural bars. It's very difficult after your conviction to get anyone, any court, to look at the facts of the conviction. Normally, this is the time I'd tell you that Anthony Kyles is still waiting for an appeal or a ruling, or his lawyers are hopeful a new district attorney might agree to a deal. But his story has a happier ending. I wondered to myself, was this going to be the end of my life here? But I always resolved in my mind that I was going to fight no matter what. In 2022, the Oakland County, Michigan Prosecutor's Office agreed to review Anthony's case through their Conviction Integrity Unit, Imran Syed. We were able to go to them with all of our findings, and they did their own investigation. Independent fire investigators also examined the evidence. They found that the fire was accidental. Oakland County District Judge Daniel O'Brien released an order on October 12, 2022. It said, quote, 
an independent expert retained in 2022 by the Conviction Integrity Unit concluded that the fire underlying this case cannot be classified as arson and was most likely caused by faulty wiring in an electric space heater. The trial expert was asked for input and declined. The order vacated and eventually overturned Anthony's conviction. So Anthony's case could have been appealed for years to come if we had had to fight this out through the courts. But he walked out of prison that afternoon. I come out the front door of the prison. My daughter, Shanae and Amir, they the two youngest. They jumped up in my arms. I've got both of these grown women in, in one arm and in the other arm, like they babies. Yeah, it was an emotional day for sure. It's a big win for the Kyles family and also for science. Fire science is a forensic success story moving forward. Decades after the publication of NFPA 921, the scientific guideline to investigating fires, it is still being updated every few years based on new discoveries. But Imran argues that the legal system needs to reframe its approach to fire investigation. Anthony's is probably the fourth or fifth arson case where we've achieved an exoneration. These are all tragedies where house burns down and people die in the fire. But we have to start with why did this happen and not start with who did it? Because maybe no one did. Meanwhile, Anthony is adjusting to his new life. He has a job and is working toward buying a house. He wants to write a book chronicling his spiritual journey and the bond between a father and daughter. Anthony's release is a victory but the price he paid was extraordinarily high. This case was initially before a federal court for the death penalty. This is how serious a mistake. He has filed federal and state lawsuits seeking compensation for his wrongful conviction, but no amount of money can replace what he's lost. I went to prison, I was 28, I'm 55 now. How much money do you think can, uh, you can give me to make up for that. You can't, you can't give me the money to make up for me not being there for my youngest daughter, never seeing her. You can't give me no money to make up for not being there for my mother and father when they pass away. How much money you really think you could give me that you say that's gonna appease me for 25 years of my life gone? Next time on CSI On Trial, so where do we go from here? If you're a juror and you're in a case where you're presented with some sort of forensic evidence, just be critical. Put on your, like, science hat. CSI On Trial is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. Based on the Curiosity Stream series, CSI on Trial, created by Eleanor Grant and produced by The Biscuit Factory. You can watch all six episodes of the video series right now at curiositystream.com. This episode is hosted and written by me, Molly Herman, and researched by Katie Dunn and myself. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Jessica Metzger is the senior producer. Virginia Prescott, Jason English, Brandon Barr, and L.C. Crowley are the executive producers. Sound design and mix by Miranda Hawkins. Voice acting by Mike Coscarelli. 
Special thanks to John Higgins, Rob Burke, Rob Lyle, and Brandon Craigie. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.